As Israel attempts to evict the Palestinian people from their ancestral homes in Jerusalem and pounds the people of Gaza with the most advanced weapons and thus destroys the idea of a two-state solution once and for all, what does it imply about the future of that single state? Will it forever be an apartheid state or will it be democratic and equal? And what does that mean for the exclusivist apartheid Jewish state called Israel. Today, we will explore the contradictions of imperialism and the ironies of history. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on The Socialist Program, where we go beyond the superficial to understand the social and political struggles dominating the world today. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Gerald Horn. He holds the Moore's Professorship of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's the author of many books, his most recent being The Bittersweet Science Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He is also the author of books that I want to mention and recommend, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Another book, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America. Dr. Horn, welcome back to The Socialist Program. Thank you for inviting me. As we're talking, the Israeli government is giving the world a clear, vivid, brutal display of what it is prepared to do to the people of Gaza. The Gaza Strip, part of historic Palestine, invaded by Israel in 1967, is today described as an outdoor prison. The people can't leave. They can't get what they need to live. You have the Egyptian state on one side enforcing a blockade, basically, and on the other side, the state of Israel not only blockading the people of Gaza, but constantly warning against them. I mean, we can go through the last 20 years. It's been one war after another. Thousands of Palestinians died in the battles, but we don't even know the numbers who have died because they couldn't get medicine. They were sick. They couldn't get proper nutrition. They don't have electricity. I mean, the blockade, the nonstop blockade and siege of Gaza is something that's remarkable, unlike perhaps anything else that's going on in the world today. And yet, as I said in the introduction, Gerald, the state of Israel may be very well bringing its own exclusivist apartheid state ever nearer to the day when it, in fact, disappears. Anyway, I want to get your thoughts. Well, you see that in the recent meetings this past 48 hours of both the Arab League and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Uh, that is to say that with regard to the latter, Iran was leading the charge. And it's curious because 
Israel now claims that one of the central threats to its national security is Iran. And yet the events of this past week or so with regard to the siege of Gaza has basically revealed that Israel is a war criminal and that puts wind in the sails of Iran and gives Iran more authority amongst the Muslim bloc. And you can see something similar happening in the Arab League. It's very curious that the United Arab Emirates, for example, was part and parcel of these so-called Abraham Accords negotiated by the 45th U.S. president circa September 2020. And the premise was that Israel would do an end run around occupied Palestine and negotiate deals with various Arab states who then would lean on the Palestinians and therefore guarantee Israel's continued seizure of Palestinian land and colonial occupation. But alas, that has not happened. You see nervousness in the United Arab Emirates with regard to this deal. You see nervousness in Morocco and North Africa where demonstrations have erupted in protests against what's happening to the Palestinians. You see protests in Jordan, which is perpetually on shaky ground, not least because it has a substantial Palestinian population, and also because there's been this palace intrigue going on lately, where apparently the Saudis were trying to replace King Abdullah with his half-brother, who is now under house arrest. And of course, you see it in Saudi Arabia too, which was due up next to join the so-called Abraham Accords, but now it's having second and third thoughts, and according to press reports, is now negotiating nervously with what we had thought was their perpetual foe, speaking of Iran. So you see that what Israel is doing in Gaza is backfiring spectacularly. And you also see this within Israel itself with regard to the persecution and the attempted lynching in the past week of certain members of the 18% strong Palestinian Arab population in Israel itself, which led one commentator to suggest that Israel might be on the verge of a civil war. And we also see it with regard to the embattled prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who faces the prospect of being in an orange jumpsuit behind bars unless he can beat these criminal corruption charges that are hanging above his head. Now, apparently, that gives him impetus to flex his military muscles and parade and preen as Mr. National Security. But once again, that's only backfiring. And speaking of backfiring, Israel has also suggested that the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which I'm pleased to say is thriving and vibrant in North America, Israel has suggested that BDS is also a threat to its integrity, grouping it with Iran, believe it or not. And yet what's happened in Gaza over the past few days is nothing more than an advertisement for why we need BDS. Because obviously there needs to be enormous pressure on this war criminal state known as Israel. Obviously the US military aid that's going to Israel needs to be curtailed. 
obviously any aid to Israel needs to be conditioned on basically complying with international law, not least seeking to end Israel's siege of East Jerusalem, which in some ways helped to trigger this current crisis. East Jerusalem had been said by the international community, its status was to be negotiated between the two sides, Israelis and the Palestinians. But Israel, as they say, is creating facts on the ground that are making that very difficult. And then you see the pressure placed on U.S. imperialism itself, because U.S. imperialism has a very important military base in Turkey, a member of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, led by the United States, one of the largest militaries in NATO. And yet Washington has been thumbing its nose at Turkey of late. It was quite critical of Turkey's aid to the Azerbaijanis and their conflict with Armenia in the past six to eight months. And then Washington outraged Turkey by saying that what happened in Armenia 115 years ago was in fact a genocide. And now you see Turkey up in arms about what's happening in Gaza. Recall that Turkey is quite close to Hamas, the major force in Gaza, that Hamas leaders are wine, I shouldn't say wine and dine, but the equivalent of wine and dine in Ankara. And Turkey has been issuing one blistering statement after another, castigating Israeli aggression in Gaza. And this is obviously putting enormous pressure on the key strategic relationship between Ankara and Washington, because it's not only that Turkey is a member of NATO, it's also the point that when President Zelensky of Ukraine uh, visited Ankara in the past few weeks, it was seen as another Washington manipulation to try to recruit some sort of Kiev-Ankara bloc against Russia, for example. And now it's possible that that pipe dream may also be in tatters. And so we see that Washington's inability to restrain its problem child, speaking of Israel, Washington's inability to impose sanctions against this war criminal state is also backfiring against U.S. imperialism. And I think that that, among other factors, may lead to increased intensified pressure on Washington to restrain this criminal state in Israel. Those are very, very important points. And many of our listeners might not realize that while the United States has a fastened relationship and is the patron of the state of Israel, Israel is the largest beneficiary of U.S. military and economic aid, no matter what it does. And even when Benjamin Netanyahu came to Washington and spoke before both houses of Congress and trashed the sitting president of the United States and his most important foreign policy initiative, that would be Barack Obama's initiative to have the JCPOA, Netanyahu came to Washington and before both houses of Congress denounced the most important diplomatic initiative of his patron of Washington. And yet on the way out of office, the Obama White House negotiated a 10-year military deal with Israel to provide it another $30 billion, to which Netanyahu complained that wasn't enough. So you had that kind of a 
sort of an alignment. But in the process of this, Jewish Americans, especially younger Jewish Americans, are turning and have turned very dramatically from where they were 10 or 15 or certainly 25 years ago in terms of their own attitude towards the state of Israel. I think now you can say that perhaps the greatest base of support for the state of Israel inside the United States would be evangelical Christians rather than young Jewish people. When you look at the statements of Jewish Voices for Peace, now Jewish Voices for Peace says Zionism is racism. And that while they at one time provided a sort of a platform for another way for Israel to go, a different political direction, that organization is now recognizing that Zionism foundationally, fundamentally, is an apartheid racist ideology. It's an exclusivist ideology. And even inside Congress, while, you know, again, it's sickening and disgusting how much support there still is, almost universal, for the state of Israel, no matter what it does, including Joe Biden's announcing that Israel has the right to defend itself. I mean, nobody says that about the Palestinians. But you do have others, liberals in Congress, who are more outspokenly talking against what Israel is doing. That would be AOC, the squad, Bernie Sanders, obviously very much still within the framework of imperialist ideology. But my point is it's shifting, it's changing. The political climate is changing. And when you're a settler regime dependent on a patron and you alienate not only the entire world, not only the Arab world, but the people inside the United States, including Jewish people, that would be a sign that things are going in the wrong direction. And also, Gerald, before I get your comments on this, Israeli society itself has also shifted. I mean, in 1948, when the Soviets co-authored with the United States the resolution creating the state of Israel, there were many social democratic emigres from Europe who were there. There were people who would have considered themselves leftists. Now, this is a hard right very Jewish, supremacist, racist body politic. And again, for young Jewish Americans, it's a turnoff. I mean, people don't want to be identified with something like that. And when you think about the Jewish population generally in America, among the white population, it's perhaps the most liberal. I mean, in terms of voting Democratic and not Republican. Anyway, these are things that the Israeli government and Netanyahu don't seem to care about that much at the moment, but they obviously will become fundamental in the calculations about what comes next for Israel, maybe not next week, but certainly in the coming years. Well, speaking of which, these tensions, as you suggested, are reverberating within the ranks of the Democratic Party. That is to say, with these stinging critiques issuing from the likes of Bernie Sanders, AOC, etc., there are strains that are evident within the Democratic Party. And for Mr. Biden, who thus far has been singing from Mr. Netanyahu's hymn book with regard to this notorious support of Israel's war of aggression, this could not come at a more inopportune moment because I'm sure that you and your audience might have noticed that remarkable and extraordinary open letter by dozens of retired military brass in the United States, including John Poindexter, who you may recall was implicated at the highest level in the Iran-Contra scandal under Mr. Reagan, 
And this letter basically echoed MAGA talking points, speaking about the alleged creeping, quote, socialism, unquote, under Biden. And this comes on the heels of the January 6, 2021 insurrection on Capitol Hill, where you also had active military brass and retired military brass who were implicated, followed by Pentagon Chief Lloyd Austin uh, having a stand down to examine and scrutinize white nationalism within the highest ranks of the U.S. military. And this kind of war that you see Israel engaging in basically accelerates the animal spirits amongst this military brass, making it more difficult for Mr. Biden, even if he wanted to, which is doubtful, but making it more difficult for him to been to the will of the left wing of the Democratic Party. And if he were to bend to the will of the left wing of the Democratic Party, this would only increase the pressure placed upon him by the coupmongers. And I think that that's an appropriate descriptor of these forces. And speaking of the GOP, in some ways it mirrors Israel in the sense that they're just various stripes of the right wing in the Republican Party, just like there are various stripes of the right wing at the highest levels of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. For example, you have the neocon like Liz Cheney, who will probably be running for president, although she's highly critical of Mr. Trump. It's difficult, to put it mildly, to see her as nothing more than another political disaster. And then, of course, you have the bulk of the party, which is dancing to the tune of Mr. Trump with the leading elements in both the Democratic and the Republican Party refusing to read the handwriting on the wall, which has been basically placed there by Human Rights Watch, the well-respected grouping based out of New York, which in a lengthy and detailed report basically adjudged Israel to be an apartheid state, which obviously it is. And this apartheid state, once again, is creating enormous strains and pressure for those who have been co-opted to their side. Now I'm thinking of Egypt under General al-Sisi, who has been playing a role as a sidekick of Israel in terms of blockading Palestinians who are from Gaza. Now we are told that Egypt is helping to ferry the injured into Egyptian hospitals in Sinai, but I'm not sure if that's enough to stem the outrage that's growing in Egypt with regard to its toady role concerning not only Israel, but the United States of America. And once again, this could not have happened at a more inopportune moment for Egypt, because as we speak, there is a standoff between Egypt and Ethiopia with Egypt threatening, believe it or not, war. This would not be the first time that Egypt has threatened war against Ethiopia. That particular story stretches back millennia, believe it or not. But in this case, it stems from the fact that Ethiopia is building a dam that Egypt claims is threatening its lifeblood, speaking of the Nile. And once again, with Egypt and General al-Sisi under pressure because of his toady role 
vis-a-vis Israel and the Ethiopians not willing to yield concerning Egyptian threats, there is a distinct possibility that whatever support General al-Sisi, a coup monger himself, by the way, whatever support he may have will begin to fracture and crumble as well. All of this is a direct outgrowth of the war of aggression by the war criminal regime led by Benjamin Netanyahu, who, if there was any justice, would be behind bars by now. And I think that at some point, even Egyptian so-called allies will have to come to the realization that supporting this regime is not worth it. It creates problems. It creates destruction. And it's going to have to be reined in by any means necessary. I meant to mention this in my earlier comment, but I got sidetracked. I sidetracked myself. But again, going back to 1956, the when Israel invaded the Sinai after the Egyptian government nationalized the Suez Canal, the Nasser government, it did so with Britain and French imperialism. They were working together. The United States at that time condemned the Israeli military action. Of course, the Soviet Union condemned it more forcefully and said, I think Khrushchev said at the time, perhaps if the war kept going, there would London would end up with a nuclear bomb in it or something. Anyway, it had the effect of stopping the Israeli government in its tracks. And the US had obviously a big, profound, open criticism of Israel. The time at which the Israeli government became wedded or sort of joined at the hip with the United States was in 1967, where the U.S. was bogged down in the war in Vietnam, couldn't win the war in Vietnam, and yet the Arab Revolution and the pan-Arab aspirations of the Arabic-speaking people, hundreds of millions strong, were sweeping the old order throughout the Middle East, and Israel proved itself to be a very formidable military ally by launching this blitzkrieg-type attack in June 1967 against all of the Arab countries and defeating them in a six-day war, it was only after that that the United States really 100% embraced Israel. And yes, the Israeli lobby is strong, it's powerful, etc., but U.S. imperialism's foreign policy isn't dictated by any single lobby. The Israelis proved themselves to be a reliable and necessary military, an extension of American military power in this resource-rich and at that time very revolutionary part of the world. The other sort of part of that axis was the Shah of Iran, and that was the Nixon doctrine, Iran, Israel, and the United States, quote, policing the Middle East, policing the Arab world, the force of counter-revolution. But here we are decades later, And what we're talking about, Gerald, is everything that seemed to be certain has become uncertain. Everything that has happened, even the, quote, victories of Israel and the victories of the U.S., they have within themselves the seeds for their own opposite. They have within themselves contradictions that ultimately emerge. And this is that part of the historical process that I think people need to understand, especially progressive people, people like this is the socialist program, people who are interested in socialism. You mentioned the letter of the 120 retired generals and admirals 
that was sent out last week, including John Poindexter, they all condemn the legitimacy of the 2020 election. They are the military voice of the coup insurrection forces on January 6th. And you can see now why on January 12th, all eight of the Joint Chiefs of Staff issued that remarkable letter to all 1.3 million members of the U.S. military, reminding them that not only was it against the, quote, values of the military to stay out of politics, but that it was illegal and punishable, a criminal crime to interfere in U.S. constitutional law. That was an extraordinary moment, but it demonstrates, I think, that the Pentagon Joint Chiefs knew that while the coup plot may have been badly organized and not really fully thought out, it did have substantial, substantial support inside the U.S. military. I want you to comment on that. And then I want to go back to something else, Gerald, and maybe finish on this. There was another letter like this letter of the 120 retired generals and admirals, and it was published by, I believe at that time, 140 retired generals and admirals who constituted what was called the Committee on the Present Danger, and that was issued a full-page ad in the New York Times in 1980. It was a warning to the Carter administration that it needed to get tough and take issue with the Soviet Union and confront the Soviet Union and stop the communist winning streak of the 1970s. And it even included in this letter, this remarkable letter at that time, nothing like it had ever been issued before, a defense of the People's Republic of China. Anyway, I want to go back because here you have, again, one of the ironies of history, the Pentagon, the right wingers in the Pentagon, the retired generals and admirals insisting on a U.S. alliance with China against the Soviet Union and now having integrated China into the world economy 40 years later, the same military identifies major power conflict as its number one priority, meaning war with China. Anyway, so there's two parts. Let's start first, though, with the issue of the significance of this letter, January 6th again, and that January 12th letter from the Joint Chiefs to all members of the U.S. military warning them, don't do it. And before that, there's the remarkable op-ed on the Washington Post on January 3rd, 2021. Right. According to Peggy Noonan of the Wall Street Journal, that op-ed signed by 10 Pentagon chiefs, including Liz Cheney's dad, Dick Cheney, was shepherded into being by one Liz Cheney, which is one of the reasons she was purged from the GOP leadership. Peggy Noonan also says the other reason that she has been under attack by her erstwhile comrades is because she has inside dope with regard to high-level GOP complicity in the insurrection of January 6th, and there is a fear in the GOP that an investigation could subject some party leaders to criminal charges, believe it or not, if not worse. And this bespeaks as well the folly of drinking the Kool-Aid, in fact, guzzling the Kool-Aid with regard to the alleged democratic traditions of the United States, which are supposedly embedded in this Bill of Rights, because any country that has endured massive dispossession and mass enslavement carries within its womb the seeds of fascism. And to show you that this is not just unique to the United States of America, 
at the same time that this document, this letter was issued by John Poindexter and others in the United States across the Atlantic and France, a similar letter was issued by retired military brass threatening the Macron regime endorsed by the neo-fascist competitor Marine Le Pen and issued ominously on the 60th anniversary of the attempt by settlers in then colonized Algeria to overthrow Charles de Gaulle with French military assistance. So these are very dangerous moments that we're facing, which brings us back to Israel because I'm happy that you mentioned the Suez crisis of 1956 because that too led to earth shattering changes after London and Paris were forced to stand down, London, you saw that the bell was tolled concerning the British Empire. London decided to tie itself to the apron strings of U.S. imperialism, whereas France recognized that U.S. imperialism was not necessarily reliable, and it was trying to develop an independent force that would lead it out of the military wing of NATO. And then you also mentioned the 1967 war, which another turning point for U.S. imperialism. But what's remarkable there, and this is something that I'm sure has not escaped the attention of policymakers in Washington, is that Israel rather brazenly decided to attack the U.S. ship Liberty in daylight on the open sea for reasons that remain unclear but probably having something to do with suspicion that the Liberty was able to monitor Israeli depredations that had monitored to war crimes. And of course, a number of U.S. sailors were killed. A number of families of those sailors are still clamoring for an investigation that is yet to be thoroughly launched. And that illustrates the point for the day, which is how U.S. imperialism, with all of its scheming, and diabolical plots, it's basically in a trajectory leading to decline. And all of these schemes and plots seeking to arrest that decline in some ways accelerate that decline, which of course brings us to the People's Republic of China, the Entente between Washington and Beijing, 71-72, engineered by Henry Kissinger and Richard M. Nixon. Part of the payoff was that China, in return for its anti-Soviet posture, was to receive massive foreign direct investment from not only the United States, but its North Atlantic allies. It was not envisioned that this would create this juggernaut that bids fair to leave U.S. imperialism sprawling in the dust. This obviously has not escaped the intention of U.S. imperialism. You might have noticed that climbing the bestseller list is a novel by James Stavridis, the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. This novel, 2034, envisions a war between China and the United States. In fact, one right-wing commentator suggested that the novel should be renamed 2021 or 2022, because that's what's now currently being envisioned. That is to say, some sort of conflict with the People's Republic of China, But I would urge the hawks to cool their jets, that it's not a kind of happenstance that China 
has landed a vehicle on Mars, that it has landed a vehicle on what we call the dark side of the moon, that it's in the process not only of developing a space station, and by the way, the space station that the United States is involved in involving Moscow, Moscow is about to pull the plug on that particular joint operation as Moscow and Beijing creep ever closer to an alliance. In fact, Xi Jinping and Putin meet on such a regular basis that it's almost as if they're best buddies, which may not be an exaggeration. And historically, the geopolitical analysts in Washington have suggested that by all means necessary, that Washington and U.S. imperialism should prevent and forestall any sort of alliance between Beijing and Moscow, because fundamentally, you're talking about control over this strategic landmass with Moscow being adjacent to the old continent and the European Union, one of the most important markets in the capitalist world, 450 million strong, even with the absence of Britain. And then China being the linchpin of the fastest growing continent, the most populous continent, uh, speaking of Asia. And so once again, what we espy is that despite 1971-1972 and this so-called diplomatic stroke of genius whereby U.S. imperialism thought it had stemmed the tide, the tide represented by the oncoming ouster of U.S. imperialism from Vietnam, triumph of the Sandinista revolution, the Grenadian revolution, the rise to power in Aden of the Socialist Party of the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, the rise to power in Afghanistan of the People's Democratic Party. Washington was frightened out of its wits about what was going on in the 1970s. Therefore, this alliance with China designed to stem the tide. And for a while, it did seem that they had stemmed the tide, witnessed the ouster from the Socialist Party from power in Aden, the fracturing of the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, and the coming to power of these religious zealots, who, of course, are in the process of kicking U.S. imperialism out of Kabul. But alas, that was just a pipe dream. They only perhaps delayed the inevitable, which is the downward trajectory of U.S. imperialism. Yeah. And again, I want to just reiterate some of the points that you just made for our audience, especially for younger folks. I mean, if we were having this conversation 40 years ago at the beginning of 1981 or two or three years earlier, we would have witnessed a decade where the U.S. lost in Vietnam, lost in Cambodia, lost in Laos, the Portuguese fascist government was overthrown, the liberation movements in Angola, Guinea-Bissau, Mozambique were victorious, the military coup revolution in Ethiopia announced itself as a communist government in 1977. The Nicaraguan, the Sandinistas came to power in 1979. Before that, in 1978, there was the SARS revolution in Afghanistan that brought Marxists to power in Kabul. And then, of course, the Iranian revolution. And Al Haig, when he came into power as Secretary of State in January 1981, Reagan Secretary of State, he said, we're going to stop the communist winning streak. And key to that was making this alliance with China. 
And I think by integrating China into the world economy, unlike the Soviet Union, where you had, it was illegal to sell a single computer to the Soviet Union. It was the most embargoed country ever, most sanctioned country ever. But it was a big country with lots of open spaces and lots of resources and a socialist planned economy. And it had developed into a major, the second major world power. You know, what I think happened inside the Soviet Union, this is doesn't explain it entirely, but I think there was a level of demoralization within the Soviet leadership that China, which had having entered into an alliance with U.S. imperialism, was being integrated into the world economy at the time of the high-tech revolution, reaping the benefits of foreign direct investment, reaping the benefits of the latest technology. And the Soviet Union's economy, while not going into negative growth, was slowing down substantially. And I think that gave encouragement to one wing or several wings, perhaps, within the Soviet leadership who said, well, why can't we forge an alliance with U.S. imperialism? And so you can have Hungary back and Bulgaria and East Germany and Poland and, you know, we'll give Eastern Europe back to Western imperialism. And that was the start of the Cold War. That'll end the Cold War. But in the process, they're overthrown. So now U.S. imperialism by 1991, having divided the socialist camp, using the alliance with China as a wedge, now seems to be the unipolar power and is so bold, so audacious, so strong, so sure of itself, so incautious that it engages in war after war after war in the past 20 years. Meanwhile, China, having integrated into the world economy, is not at war, but certainly able to access technology and under the leadership of the Communist Party of China, grow strong, become confronted by U.S. imperialism and forge an alliance with the former Soviet Union, at least the Russian government. I mean, talk about the dialectic. Speaking of the dialectic, you rather kindly and graciously mentioned my book on the 16th century. And in that book, which, of course, deals with that particular time period, I draw an analogy between what's happening now and what happened in the 16th century, which helps to explain why an African like myself in North America, speaking a language, English, developed in Northwest Europe, because at the time, a major contradiction was between the Ottoman Turks, Muslims, and the Catholic Spanish. This is in the context of the religious wars of late feudalism. And what happens is that the Ottoman Turks, in many ways, they underestimate the monarchy on the fringes of Western Europe, speaking of England, and they cut a deal with England against the interests of Catholic Spain, even though, of course, both countries are Christian, although they're split between Protestants and Catholics, just like ostensibly both Moscow and Beijing in 1971 were both communists, although obviously they were split. But what happens is that that deal does not necessarily pay off for Ottoman Turkey as it's left sprawling in the dust as England begins to rise, not least because of its alliance with Muslim forces, I would say particularly the Muslim forces in North Africa, which allows them to attack the Songhai Empire due south in today's Mali, which softens up a good deal of West Africa for the onrushing African slave trade and the further enrichment of London to the point where it was able to construct the British Empire. And so miscalculation is not necessarily new in world history. It's not necessarily unique to the United States of America. 
And I think that with regard to the miscalculation that we're talking about, with regard to the then Soviet Union and China, I mean, let's face it, the Soviet Union was encircled. I mean, it had antagonistic forces on all of its borders, including China, Japan, South Korea, not to mention the NATO forces on the other side of that large, sprawling, continental-sized country. Then the brush fire that was ignited in Afghanistan on its southern border, which then was to sweep into the stands, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, etc., weakening the Soviet Union on that particular border as well. And I think we also need to recognize that if by some stroke of fate, which I think is highly doubtful and dubious, but let us imagine that what happened to the Soviet Union will befall the People's Republic of China, that is to say the ouster of communists from rule. Well, what's interesting is that that's only preparing the ground for the rise of two members of the so-called quad, not the squad, the quad, the quad being the latest encirclement plot, United States, India, Australia, Japan, and two members of the quad, speaking of India and Japan, have had a long-time alliance stretching back millennia to the origins of Buddhism. And it's fair to suggest that in order to weaken China, U.S. imperialism, as it's doing now, will probably be forced to cut deals with both Japan and India, which will then lead to the further rise of that particular duopoly. And so the beat goes on. Washington will not be able to arrest its decline. U.S. imperialism will not be able to arrest its downward trajectory. And the prognosis is grim. And one would think that if I can see this, that others should be able to see it. But alas, I guess what we're talking about is the essence of false consciousness. Dr. Horn, Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I don't know if the universe has a morality to it, but if we're looking at the long trends, the diminution, decline, retreat of U.S. imperialism, which has no intention of going quietly, it does bend in the direction of justice because it's been this imperialism in particular, which resurrected the other imperialisms and galvanized them and created a united front with them against communism and socialism after World War II. Without this imperialism dominating the globe, the movements towards justice will go far. And you can just apply this, and this will be, I'll give you the last word, if it weren't for the United States, if it wasn't for U.S. imperialism, if it wasn't for U.S. aid, if it wasn't for U.S. sort of positioning and authority in the Middle East, the state of Israel would not be able to do any of that which it's doing against the Palestinian people or against Israeli neighbors. The key here isn't so-called the omnipotence of the Israeli state. It's their partnership with U.S. imperialism. Go ahead. Well, yes. And once again, just to come full circle, this current crisis in historic Palestine is only heightening the contradictions of U.S. imperialism. As noted, it's leading to fractures in the Democratic Party with increasing numbers of the left wing of the Democratic Party 
raising very serious and profound points about this so-called alliance with Israel. It's raising fractures in those signatories of the so-called Abraham Accords negotiated by the 45th U.S. president, speaking of nations like the UAE, speaking of other signatories like Sudan, which, by the way, as we speak, is in Paris with this begging bowl trying to get money to pay off the international bankers and vultures. And of course, the demonstrations that are rocking Morocco as we speak, which not only is shaking the dynasty, the monarchy, but bids fair to also shake its tenuous hold over Western Sahara, oftentimes billed as the last colony in Africa, formerly under Spanish domination. So we see that the beat goes on, that U.S. imperialism's crisis continues, and fortunately also continuing is the ever stiffer resistance to this monster. That was the voice of Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn holds the Moore's Professorship of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's the author of many books. His most recent book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. As I mentioned in the beginning, he's the author of many, many other books. I'm going to mention two that I mentioned in the beginning. I encourage our listeners to buy these books. If you're in the movement, in the progressive movement, get with your friends and study them, talk about them. One is called The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America. The other is The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. On the front cover, Cornell West, public intellectual and scholar, writes about you, Gerald Horn, one of the great historians of our time. You're listening to The Socialist Program. If you like this show, if you rely on independent programming like this, show your support by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. We will be back on Tuesday. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. <laughs>